Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. So Tamson and Dan read the paper again. What do you mean again? <laughs> this is this is like uh, this is two hundred and forty some yes. odd episodes. Yes. Odd is the word, yeah. Um, and it's October third, right. Sunday. We're in the fall, two thousand twenty-one. Right. And uh, a few shout-outs. Uh, this would have been. My grandparents' 100th wedding anniversary. Ooh, happy anniversary. Sadie and Fred. Really? Sarah and Fred. Sarah yeah. Sarah and Fred, right. Okay. And uh, all, not to mention, on Friday mm-hmm. uh, would have been my father's 99th birthday. All right. Okay. So it was my father's parents. I was going to say, it couldn't be 100 because there'd be, no, 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 that, no, that no. would have well, been a shotgun would be, wedding. That, that would, would be shocking. Yes, that would yes. be shocking. <laughs> I was wondering um, about that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so they were married, and then a year ago, bingo. They waited year a respectful later, time bingo. and a year later. Yeah. Perfect. Well, as Sadie pointed out, yes. our Sadie, yeah. um, Sarah slash Sadie Granger was up there in age, 32, Yeah. by the time she was... Uh, Having uh, my father, 32, oh, okay. 33. So, uh, First child. you know, yeah. they, were they, they were ready. They were ready. Yes, well, good. Okay, so it's a beautiful time of well, year. They didn't jump the gun. It is a beautiful time of year. That's and, correct. And uh, we, we've had a couple of beautiful days. Actually, it, it's been cold at night, but warming up like crazy. Yeah, just for one day. And so. it makes you think that fall is coming. I mean, it is actually fall. Yeah, it's, well, it's October, too. According to the people, right. you know, who say those things. And... Um, in the uh, New York Times, online I saw this. Hmm. We don't seem to have access to a hard copy of the travel section, yeah, but know. apparently there was an article yeah. by Joyce Maynard, yes. the uh, writer. Well, we all know Joyce Maynard. Yeah, what do you know about her? Well, Joyce Maynard famously had that uh, situation with J.P. Situation? We're calling it a situation? She was a young uh, student, and she ended up being invited by Salinger to spend some time with him. I guess they had an affair. He, Salinger, of course, a famous author, but also famous for being a hermit, really, a recluse. No one ever dealt with him. Somehow, Joyce Maynard uh, got inside the bubble, and... uh, and she also wrote, uh, just before that, I believe, she was selected by the New York Times to write an article about her generation in the Times Magazine. Right, section. growing up in the 60s. Yeah, which, yeah. Was, which was probably uh, not the greatest idea. It was, much, it was liked by some, criticized by others, and it, it put a little bullseye on her back. Well, the whole Salinger thing was really shocking yeah, no, to, right. to find out about that. And so, she writes about him as, at this point as a predator. Yeah. Oh, is that? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And that he had other you're kidding. Um, young uh, women. Well, I've uh, actually heard he was a really nice guy, but uh, uh, what do I know? Well, <laughs> nice enough. She fell for him to a certain extent. Well, the, the point um, is that she looked like she was marked at an early time for having a great literary career. Which, yes, which yes. She, which she did Absolutely. not. Absolutely. She has not, really. Well, but, she's written a lot. Yeah, but she's not uh, But a, she, um, she's not you a know, she figure. left Yale oh, I to know live that. with him. Oh, I didn't know that, no. And uh, I, I just read, I don't know that much about her. I haven't read anything she's written except this article. Um, and uh, apparently she went back to Yale in 2018 oh. to work to, as a sophomore. Oh, you're kidding. To work on her degree. I don't, know, of, I don't know if she got it. Age not, of something like 60. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. Well, in any event, enough about her. I mean, she's... Any, well, not in, uh, the article, right? The article. So anyway, it's... Uh, I'm not going to go through the article. Right. It's worth reading. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Search of Fall Colors, A Long Drive on New Hampshire Roads. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, she is taking you down back roads. She grew up and lived in uh, New Hampshire mm-hmm. many, many years and uh, knows all these wonderful towns, wonderful views, wonderful hikes, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And she describes them beautifully. And it's accompanied online with wonderful photographs. Uh, so if you can't get out uh, in person to see fall colors this year, this would be, you know, uh, at least get you partway there. So find the Times article, In Search of Fall Colors, A Long Drive on New Hampshire Roads, Joyce Maynard, and read it. And, and just, you know, forget about all this other nonsense. Okay. What other nonsense you mean? The, the stuff we were talking about. The stuff that gets in the oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her, I, I, look, her biography. Busy. Yeah. Don't right. don't let the biography... As I said, she had sort of a target on her back from that moment on. And she was, you know, you couldn't live up to that. And, and she didn't. But she's made but a living as a writer. this description of uh, fall treats is delightful. Good. Well, speaking of driving, there's an article in the Times called The Last Hurrah for a High Octane and a Stick. Uh, and what the article is about is that we are seeing the end of the stick shift. Now, I know that we all know that the, uh, the presence of stick shifts in cars is much diminished. And right now, fewer than 1% of American cars are sold with a stick shift. And we do have two friends, Kathy Easton yeah. and Lisa Walsh, insist on stick shift. This this. Do they have they, cars with a stick shift? They do, indeed. You, the Subaru that Lisa has is a stick shift? It is. And they talk every time about when we're with them and they have to valet park. Yeah. Uh, well, that must be an issue. It's it's an issue because lots of times the kids who are parking the cars don't know how to drive well, stick shift. Another shifts. reason to hate valet parking. But uh, <laughs> in any event, uh, that 1% is about to become zero. Uh for many reasons. Well, not quite zero. Oh, yeah. Lisa and... Uh, no, no, for new Kathy, cars. For new cars. Oh, okay. Because... They're uh, going to stop making them. Yeah, in, in part because the electronic vehicles don't have stick shifts. So, just forget it. I mean, you're not mm-hmm. going to have a manual there. That's uh, that's a different technology. Yeah. Um, and everyone else is just cutting back. People don't want it. Uh, the other thing about it is that, uh, you know, when we were growing up, people said, well, the stick shift is uh, advantageous in that you have better control of the car, you, you get a better gas mileage because you're, uh, mo- you know, monitoring how it's being, what gear it's in. Well, that's not true anymore because the computer-oriented shifting is better at that than any person's going to be. Now, arguably, you better control the car. Some people believe that, and I can see that. I, of course, always freely admit that I learned to drive a stick shift from your mother, which is the strangest <laughs> thing ever, if you know me and your mother. But... Uh, and the first time I had to drive it, we were moving, and I, I, I basically stalled out in every toll booth between Maryland and well, New York. Well, you, you had to learn because at that time... I was driving a U-Haul. U-Hauls were stick generally shift. stick shift, right. the, the trucks. And But I did learn, and we ended up having a car to stick And we shift. made it to the new yeah, house. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I understand what it means to have better control. Um, but, uh, and yet, uh, you can also understand why they're phasing it out. Uh, anyway, this article is very much excited about one particular car. They're talking about three models of cars. 
with a real focus on the Cadillac Blackwing, which Cadillac decided when the last hurrah, they're selling this car, which has, you know, like 765 horsepower, it's 0 to 200 in just a few seconds, six shift, blah, 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 $85,000, and they're going to stop making it after this year because they're going all electric. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're really celebrating we're going out, you know, right. in flames here. Um, and they uh, they love the car. It's so exciting. Um, and at one point they said they were offered this Cadillac with an automatic, and the quote is, but you'd have to pry the manual out of my cold, dead fingers. So there are some people who feel strongly about the demise of the stick shift, but uh, life goes on, right? And uh, so, you know, when you talk about the romantic notion of driving these country roads in New Hampshire, a la Joyce Maynard, I think of someone with a stick shift, sort mm-hmm. of, uh, but uh, not to be. <laughs> Zoom in it's gone. And I know that you, I know your father, who you mentioned at the outset, uh, would feel as strongly about this as anyone. My father was famous for when when somebody declared they weren't going to make something anymore, like when buying it up. they stopped yeah, making convertibles. Yeah, he went out and bought convertibles. Right, right, um, right. And that was a mistake because yeah. they make convertibles. Although I am reminded when a reminder of your family and stick shifts that at one point we. I think bought. I don't know that we were gifted it, but you can correct me. Uh, a car that was kind of rejiggered and rebuilt by one of your brothers. It was a huge uh, Ford station wagon or something like that. Right. And he had put in a so-called Hurst shifter. I don't have to go into details there, but it had a little trick where you had to squeeze it a particular way. But it was a stick shift. Right. And it was a big car. He it was a big stick the, shift. Yes. And one time I was driving down Route 130. You know this story. Uh and uh, I shifted from third to fourth, and I pulled up the shifter because that's the way you're supposed to do it. And the shifter came out in my hand. The whole stick came out in my <laughs> right, hand. So right. I was raising the stick above my shoulder <laughs> in the middle of this semi-highway. Uh, and somehow I got it off on the Route, island. Route 130. Yeah, Route 130. I right? think you ended up at that uh, Cranberry Circle. Yes, I did. Yeah. I was, I was uh-huh. fortunate to have made it there because I, I had no control of nothing except some momentum. I, I don't even know how you survived. Well, I put my foot down in the clutch and I glided on the island. I managed to make it. I'm oh cool under pressure. Oh, nothing my else. God. Yeah. So that's what it put me off stick. Shit. Those were the days. Those were the days. But uh, so that's why you and I are, you know, more and more turning to bicycles. Exactly. For transportation. Um, and as you, is you, you the can, rest of the world. You can shift them. Man, you you can shift it. Well, except when you get into the e-bikes. Yeah. I mean, then that's but, tricky. But we don't have any bikes. No. Yeah. Um, no. Um, but anyway, uh, so especially during the pandemic, uh, people were going crazy, um, uh, turning to bikes. Yeah, turning to bikes. Well, as a matter of fact, there's an article on the journal this week about everybody's sick of their Peloton bicycle. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? Well, anyway, for, for actual transportation. Yeah, right. Okay. There were, there have been real changes in city driving mm-hmm. since the pandemic, and one of them is uh, the introduction of more and more um, cyclists. Yeah. Okay. And that was already on the way anyway for, for environmental concerns. And New York has been adding uh, bike lanes like crazy. And, 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 uh, they've been uh, you know, closing off uh, yeah. car traffic from certain right. streets so they can have more room for bikes and buses yeah. and uh, et cetera. And, it, and it's you know, somewhat controversial now. In Paris, mm-hmm. because uh, Paris has added uh, recently about a hundred miles of bike paths mm-hmm. and has uh, really encouraged cyclists 
to be writing. Um, Mayor Anne Hidalgo, who I think uh, they say is uh, angling to run for president Mm -hmm. in uh, France. Anyway, she has made it one of her missions. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the result is, in this article in the New York Times, uh, anarchy. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It means but tra- it mean, but, traffic uh, problems. Traffic problems, <laughs> you know, in Paris. Now, of course, a lot of great cities have terrible traffic problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, and we found, and we've said this before on the podcast, when we were in Amsterdam, we feared for our lives to some extent because right. we were just not used to that level of cycling. But if you were, and you'd set be... off the, you know, when you when you step off the corner, you really had to look not just for cars but for bikes. But there were, but but if you were experienced in Amsterdam, it was safe because there were all kinds of lights that we just didn't. Uh, used very well. We weren't reading the situation, but they had but it was, set it up pretty well. It was daunting. It was daunting. Okay. But, right. but it, they were they they dealt well with it. But Apparently Paris in doesn't. Paris, yeah. cyclists feel uh, not unlike uh, um, drivers of cars in okay. Italy. Yeah, in Italy, that uh, the lights are a suggestion. More than uh, a mandatory well, you can understand command that because a okay. bicycle is not a car, so you might say to yourself, "I don't have to pay attention to that." You might say that, and they go through red lights. They just yeah, they Meanwhile, pedestrians are trying to cross. Right. People are, you know, they're they're more and more than, smashing up. Yeah, they have all these pictures of Paris, and on the, online there are all these videos, mm. and the bikes are whizzing around everywhere, which is great mm. in some ways. Yeah. But uh, somebody's got to start obeying some traffic laws or it's going to be too impossible for people, for the pedestrians to get around. Now, they have comments here from people in Copenhagen and they say people in Copenhagen, you know, actually uh, are sane and and obey the rules on their bikes mm-hmm. and it all works. But uh, Paris, uh, they, they say they're starting now educating kids as they're brought up. Right. To know the rules of the road and to have the mindset that you need to obey them, because uh, it's now more important. Uh, so it's uh, you know they're you know they're also struggling with you know how do you um, what are the rules for electric scooters etc. And they've had some deaths um, hmm. due to cyclists and scooters. So okay, uh, yeah, we'll have to sort that out, but. Um... Yeah, I can see that's going to be dicey. And and I guess uh, one of the key key offending groups, yeah. delivery people. Oh sure, that was because they're, 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 they're in a hurry. They're in a hurry. They're by. That's always been the case. I mean, yeah. it's always been the case in New York that you, if you're going to get killed, you're likely going to get killed by a delivery guy who's going the wrong way on a one way street. And often, don't those bikes not have brakes? Well, they often don't have gears. Uh, I think they have brakes. They have brakes? Yeah, okay. but no gears. No gears? Yeah, one gear. They're just in one gear. Um, well, it makes the bike lighter. The, uh, okay, so the one thing I was going to talk about, and I'm going to try and make this, I don't want to get into complexity here just because it's just not interesting, but uh, it has to do with the uh, colleges, and um, it's kind of odd because obviously there are a lot of very intelligent people involved in colleges, uh, and supposedly uh, highly sophisticated, uh, highly ethical folks. And uh, and yet, when it comes to dealing with money, um, they're a little funny. I don't quite get it. And there are two stories which are different, but uh, thematically it comes back to uh, inability to really have a good sense of 
what it means to make an agreement and, and deal with money. Um, one is Stanford, one is Yale. So, you know, there you go. Uh, Stanford first. So there, there's the, everyone's been reading for too long and too much about the scandal about admissions and people getting college admissions. College admissions. Well, you're right. And it all went through this fellow named Rich Singer, who is this uh, counselor uh, who apparently would go to people who were trying to get their kids into prestigious schools and say, I have a way of angling them in and would get paid a lot of money in a context of big time schools. And uh, it's alleged that, in fact, they got in on athletics, not athletic scholarships, but on an athletic basis for preferred admissions, even though they never even played the sport. And big right. scandal, big scandal. Well, okay. There's an article here about a guy named John Vandemore, who, is, who was the uh, sailing coach mm-hmm. at Stanford. And as you as I well know, if you were in a non-revenue sport, in this case sailing, it's uh, tough going. He was a sailing coach for, for something like 10 or 11 years at, at Stanford. He was successful. But you often have to raise your own money. We know that from other sports, from water polo, right? Right. That's what he had to do. So, uh, uh, okay. So he, he understands that's something he has to manage in order to make the program go. And so uh, he's told by an assistant coach uh, at the f- basketball team, said, there's a guy uh, I want you to talk to, a guy named Rick Singer. He has some possibilities of some walk-on candidates for the sailing team. You should talk to him. So he says, okay. He talks to this guy, Singer, you know, without the details. It ends up a transaction in which uh, Singer gives checks of $770,000. He says, you know, these these parents are willing to make donations, you know, uh, in connection with the applications of their kids. And before we all, you know, sigh and blanch everything, that happens all the time. That's standard with admission process. It's no big deal in this world, whether it should be that way or not. That's the way it is. And he takes the money and he gives it to Stanford. He says, all right, good news. We've got some more money for the program. Here it is. And he sends it to the, the Stanford athletic director who congratulates him. Good work. Good work. Way to go. And uh, he starts explaining about this. This is guy, Rick Singer. And uh, the Stanford athletic director says, yeah, we know Rick. You know, right? Fine. Cool. Well, it turns out when uh, everything hits the fan, um, Stanford now is being investigated. Stanford claims that, that they were defrauded by Rick Singer, but they want to have as clean a slate as possible. So they're good actors. And one of the things they do in cleaning the slate is they uh, fire Zahn Vandermoor. As a matter of fact, uh, he's kind of left out in the cold. Uh, he has to uh, plead, plead guilty. Uh, to an indictment, serves a day in prison, but is now a so-called convicted felon and uh, is cut off from the program, which doesn't even, he's very unsophisticated. It doesn't even hit home until he's going over some documents with the lawyers there. And the lawyer, uh, to the lawyer's credit, the Times doesn't seem to understand this, but to the lawyer's credit, says to him at one point, a guy from Simpson Thatcher, says to Vandermore, you realize I represent Stanford, I don't represent you. At which point Vandermore suddenly goes, whoa, what's going on? Well, mm-hmm. maybe someone should have said it to him earlier. Yeah. But that's the responsible thing for this lawyer to have said. And, yeah. And I know that from my own training, you tell the people that you don't represent them. Yeah. So anyway, he got uh, screwed is, is the term. And he says, this is just totally weird. I never saw any money. I gave the money to the school. The kids at, at issue didn't even go to Stanford, as it turns out. And um, and uh, Stanford's out there saying, oh, we were defrauded. And he's going, by who? By, not by me. 
So that's kind of weird. And, and Stanford. So he lost his job. He lost his job. He's, he can't even. He's not. What does he do now? He works for the water department of his uh, locality, Half Moon Bay. Uh, yeah, someplace in California. Yeah, I've been to Half Moon Bay. Oh, you have. Huh? Yeah. Okay, so there you go. But and, he's in the like the public works. Yeah, he doesn't uh, teach sailing. He, his wife teaches sailing once in a while. He helps out or something. He's he's he's, you know. So these taboo. people gave almost eight hundred thousand dollars to Stanford, and he not to him. And Stanford keep the money, or they give it back. That I, I, my guess is it came back. I don't know. I suspect it came back. But the real point is, how is he a bad guy? He didn't take any money. So, so yeah. all right, this is just a big mess, right? Well, it's it's it, for him. It's it's his life. You know? know, and so all right, just the other half of the program. You know, there's a so I said Stanford and Yale. Yale has a program which I never heard of, but a lot of things I haven't heard of. And apparently, it's called the Brady Johnson Program in uh, Grand Strategy. Called the Brady Johnson Program because the new ma- major donors are uh, Brady and Johnson, who are still alive. The program began in 2000. It's not a million years old, and um, it's supposed to teach uh, government. Uh, and you know it's not worth going into uh, the particular theory behind it. It's sort of a great man theory of diplomacy or something like that. But, but it funds the uh, professors. Uh, more than it funds professors. a specific program. It funds a specific seminar program. Okay, uh, and so a professor is designated to be the head of the program. Well, it probably pays their salary. No, they don't say that. Well, okay, what what else would funding I, yeah, involve? I don't know. But in any event, uh, this woman, Beverly Gage, wasn't the original one, but she's now become, she was appointed two or three years ago the head of the program. She's a history professor there. And uh, and the program was instituted, as I said, uh, about 20 years ago uh, by uh, various folks, including Henry Kissinger. Um, in any event, it's gone on and it's developed over time. And obviously, there have been some political involvements over the last uh, 20 years, but it is what it is. And so she, this woman, Beverly Gaze, has been in charge of it. And uh, Brady and Johnson uh, somehow got wind of something going on in the program and contacted, or maybe I think they saw an op-ed piece by Beverly Gage, perhaps, in, in the paper, which was struck them as progressive. And uh, they contacted and said, you know something, uh, we'd like to take a closer look at what's going on in the program. In particular, uh, we'd like to have a discussion about the board. And uh, they said the board. And it turned out that... Uh, one of the stipulations that went with the formation of the program was that there would be a board governing the program, and Yale just forgot about it and neglected to put together the board. So, uh, I'd say that's okay. Uh, let's put together the board now. And uh, Beverly Gage says, uh, "Well, I, you know, the donors can't appoint the board, and uh, of course, she's what we call the law wrong, <laughs> because that's what the, the the donor thing says." So. They go uh, a point, they, they want certain people on the board, she wants certain people on the board, and the upshot is that she's not satisfied. And the Yeltaids, Beverly Gates, all right, we'll find someone else to run the program, and she claims that her academic freedom has been violated. Well, she hasn't been fired. The reason I said that the money doesn't pay her salary, she's still a history professor at Yale, and she's still getting paid. But the funny thing is, and that's enough detail about this, the way the Times phrases the issue, you know, her resignation from the program raises the question of where universities draw the line between honoring original agreements with donors and allowing them undue sway in academic affairs. 
Okay, so again, let me stop that. There's no line to be drawn. You don't draw a line between honoring original agreements and, you know, giving them sway. If there's an agreement, you have to honor it. End mm-hmm. of story. Done. Now, if they don't want to honor the agreement, they don't have to take the money. Right. That's cool. No one's going to jail. But they want the money. It's an agreement. Boom. And you know something? Yale understands that. Beverly Gaze doesn't. It's a story in the New York Times. Um, but it isn't really a story. So, so you're not against donors. You're not saying that donors should or shouldn't be able to say how the money is used. Donors, uh, who am I, I saying? Whatever the, the could... agreement is, the agreement exactly. is. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And at the beginning, uh, Yale could have said to the donors, guys, you know, we don't like to, you know, have programs that are structured this way. We structure them differently because of our concerns about academic freedom and flexibility or whatever. They were certainly entitled to do that. They didn't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and frankly, maybe they don't really feel they ought to or have to. But once the agreement made is the agreement made, all these folks did is walk back in and say, guys, I think you forgot about our agreement. You know, the agreement's X. And uh, I don't think it raises any complicated issues. So, anyway, another story about... Uh, colleges and money. Colleges and money. It's not well, it's that a, hard. It's a complicated topic, I think. Uh, more complicated than it has to be. Well, they're, you know, they're hungry for money. So well, that's what crazy it is. Crazy things are happening. They want the money. They want the money. Everyone wants money. You know, and uh, they're happy to turn a blind eye until they're all caught. That's exactly the point. Yeah, and that's and they would have navigated this situation. Obviously, right. that's what happened in Stanford. Yeah, it wasn't like and frankly, they would have navigated the Yale thing. They would have turned a blind eye, and they did turn a blind eye as long as they possibly could. And someone yeah. called them on it and said, "Guys, you forgot to do something." Yeah, and then uh, they're caught. Yeah, like the rest of us, they have to honor their agreements. Okay, so you wanted to get to something uh, as down to earth as Michelangelo, I think. <laughs> well, there was an article in the New York Times about. Uh, Another Pieta, another Pieta mm-hmm. uh, by Michelangelo, Michelangelo, yeah. as the cool kids say, yeah. and uh, being restored at mm-hmm. last. Okay. Now, you know the famous Pieta. Yes. Right. Yes. That's uh, in St. Peter's. Yes. And have you seen it? Yes. We've seen it We've together. Seen it. And I saw it when I was... I was the guy with you. Yes. Yeah. No, but I've seen it other times. Okay. It, I think it came to Washington or something. We all... Did it? Yeah, we all we came somewhere. We all stood online, or there was a moving stair, or something that I blocked uh, we those to experiences see. Yeah. out. I, um, yeah, I have to uh, think about that a little more. Ask my mother or something. Somebody with a good memory. But anyway, uh, Pieta is, of course, uh, what we call an image with uh, Mary, the Virgin Mary, uh, mourning the death, holding her dead son in her lap, usually. And uh, you can say pieta, pity, grief, whatever you want, right. but it actually refers to that kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the one that this article is about is in the Opera del Duomo yeah. in uh, Florence. So that Opera del Duomo just means the works of the Duomo, the cathedral. Okay, okay so it's uh, their collection is made up of things, artworks made for the uh, cathedral mm-hmm. okay so uh um this uh pieta is there i can tell you the story of how it got there um anyway it's a work that uh michelangelo did towards the end of his life mm-hmm. towards the end of his career and uh, it's an odd looking piece okay if i show it to you and i'm sorry our listeners cannot see this 
But um, here's a picture in uh, my old art survey book. All right, okay. And, uh, you know, it's kind of brown, and it's uh, not a happy group, obviously. And uh, it's uh, nowhere near the striking uh, image of uh, the Pieta that he did as a young man uh, many years before. This is done around uh, 1546, and the early earlier Pieta was, uh, you know, um, 1498. So um, that's a huge difference. Uh, anyway, um, what makes it interesting is that it, he never really finished it. Okay. The uh, Vasari, everybody says the marble didn't cooperate. The marble was awful. He would hit the chisel and um, sparks would fly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, it, it just, the marble didn't cooperate. Um, so it's kind of, so it, so at a certain point he just gives up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, he uh, gives it to a servant who entrusts it to somebody else. Um, who works the statue into the semi, semi-finished semi state we see it in now. Mm-hmm. All right. And then uh, later it's uh, sold to a banker um, named Bandini, and it's called the Bandini Pieta. Now, what, what's interesting is it's, it's a total, as I said, it's a different picture of the Pieta. It uh, not only has Mary... And Jesus, it also has Nicodemus, who's the Pharisee who came with the um, special ointments and uh, for oils for, you know, dressing uh, the um, corpse, mm-hmm. etc. And uh, also uh, Mary Magdalene there on the side. Nicodemus, uh, people say, is actually a self-portrait uh, of Michelangelo. To some extent, Uh, although um, and uh, it's rough, it's not finished. Uh, Of course, he didn't finish it. It's it's all very odd that we, you know, refer to it that it's in the the art books as a piece by uh, Michelangelo because he doesn't finish it. He gives up on it, and you you hear all the time about artists who fear that the things they didn't give their seal of approval to. will be circulated as their works later in life. And that's why some artists destroy all their, or, or, or even ask somebody, destroy everything uh, that I didn't finish uh, after I died. They, they restored this. So they restored it to some extent. It went through a lot of um, uh, damage. Um, one of the things was a plaster cast was taken of it. And the plaster wasn't quite cleaned off the original marble. And so that did damage to the marble. And also somebody, as you can tell, it looks kind of brown. And you think of Michelangelo's uh, sculptures, white, white, you know, beautiful Carrara marble. And uh, it was painted with uh, an amber... Uh, was it a wax? Yeah, an amber-colored wax. So that's why it looks brown. Mm -hmm. Um, It was essentially painted brown um so it looked really awful but um recently they took the time and had a a real expert um paola rosa uh who worked on it for quite a while and kind of brought it back to the extent that she could even though it's not really 
his work. They were able to analyze the marble. The marble did not come from Carrara as much of his marble did. It came from Cerebetza, and it did have pyrite in it, mm. which is which would spark mm. uh, when you hit it. So um, anyway, it's if you want to go see it, to some extent, the way the people are portrayed, um, it's always given it as an example of um, Michelangelo's struggle with old age, with spirituality, with his changing spirituality, and uh, it um, is a much more sort of emotionally complex piece um, than uh, that early uh, Pieta. Right. And, uh, you know, it, which makes me wonder, you know, uh, he, he wasn't satisfied with it. How, how much does it really reflect of his yeah. diminishing or changing abilities and uh, emotional um, state? Uh, if it, if it's a reject. Yeah. But anyway, you want to see it? Go to Florence. Okay. Always a good thing to do, and uh, go to the Opera del, del Duomo Museum. All right. Another reason to go to Italy. Um, <coughs> so Clive Sinclair died. And who Can I Clive? just say? Yeah. That marble. Yeah. Cerevetza, yeah. the town it's from, yeah. near Luca. Yeah, and Pisa. Yes, yeah, so we were almost there. And we were close enough. Clive Sinclair died. Clive Sinclair uh, was the inventor, uh, famously, most famously, of what are called Sinclair computers. Uh, a Sinclair computer being a simple computer that he in, created and marketed in the UK in the 1980s, which was tremendously successful to UK and, and uh, countries that would trade with the UK quite a bit. Um What's interesting about it, it, it was a simple computer that was much less expensive uh, than the U.S. Uh, computers being marketed at the time. This is the same. This is just at the moment that people were buying computers for their own use as opposed to companies buying computers for their own use. It was the early 80s. Apple's first big seller cost $1,300, which is considered the equivalent of $3,800 in today's money. He was selling the computer sold for effectively $225 and did quite a bit. And look, frankly, the standard of living in the UK, as the article points out, was lower than in the US and a lot of those other countries. And uh, it was a huge hit. And you can understand why, $225. I mean, so much so that he became quite prominent in, in, in Britain. He was knighted. Um, and he... Um, was, uh, was as I read the obit, he had a lot of very interesting uh, inventions. I mean, he's a pretty smart guy. Matter of fact, he was, uh, the me- he was a member of British Mensa, the genius organization since 19. He became the head of British Mensa. He uh, was credited with designing the world's first pocket calculator, as well as a digital watch and a pocket television. What he wasn't great at was marketing things. Which, which is weird. That he couldn't market anything? Well, the, the, you'd think it would sell itself. What? The, 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 you know, the, uh, an affordable computer. Yeah, yeah, you know what something? I mean, does it take a genius well, to figure you, out no, that... No, no, no. Uh, the computer sold it. The computer was successful. The, all right. The, the pocket calculator, the digital watch, the pocket television. And you know, the, the best example is he actually decided in the mid-1980s that the future was electric cars. Now, this is 1985. Mm-hmm. So he designs and builds something called the C5, which is an electric car. Now, in fairness, it was really a souped-up golf cart. 
Uh, it sold for uh, about $450 at a top speed of uh, 15 miles an hour. It was a range of 20 miles. And uh, you needed pedals to go up certain hills. So it, it had a ways to go. But he thought it, it had a future. And he built um, uh, his hope to sell 100000 And he only sold 4500 So, well, that's a miss. But clearly he could see the yeah, future. No, there's a difference between you mean, seeing I mean, the future and uh, making a zillion dollars. What are our phones? Our phones are essentially pocket televisions. I understand. Well, they're pocket calculators or pocket computers. Look, he, uh, this guy was extremely impressive. What's interesting is you know, when he passed, there were a few different uh, communications acknowledging his, his passing. A woman named uh, Satya Nadella is the chief executive. Uh, I'm going to say a woman. I don't, honestly don't know. Uh, of Microsoft was a teenager in India. It's a man. When he got one and he recalled on Twitter the sense of wonder and empowerment that I felt. It was your device, he said, that sparked my passion for engineering. And here, Mark, Mark you know, remarkably, uh, Elon Musk, of all people, talk about electric cars, who grew up in South Africa, tweeted, RIP Sir Sinclair, I love that computer. So the guy had a big impact. And we never heard of him. Yeah. Clive well, that, Sinclair. That's why we're here. Did he have a good life? I mean, yeah, it's basically... Life. He was uh, yeah, he divorced twice. I don't know how that cuts. Um and uh, he was a runner, of all things. Uh, he ran the New York Marathon a couple, three times. I like this quote. I sort the day out by running, he said. I might think about a business problem or a lecture, but I might also think about uh, women, weather, or poetry. <laughs> all right, so there you go. Well-rounded. All right. Uh, so if you're looking for something to read, Stanley Tucci, yeah. the actor, is coming out with another book called Taste. My Life Through Food. All right. And? Um, and, uh, uh, sorry. Anyway, so, and, well, we, we know him from the acting, yeah, right? Of we also know him, and Everyone we, knows Stanley and, uh, you know, who knew that he was that into food? But we saw one of the episodes of his uh, um, television show, yeah. right? Um, which, uh, what did you think of that? He has a television show in which he goes around Italy and right. uh, interviews people, make uh, pizzas or other things. And right. It, and it was uh, pretty dull, I thought. It was, <laughs> but, but, you know, Stanley Tucci searching for it. Yeah, Italy. it was yeah. kind of... It's know, like six he, episodes. He's a little too fussy for us around. Look, the other episodes might be better. It's much praised by other people. I don't know. So let them watch I love the idea of it, and I love Italy, but, and but, I love food, but I dozed off during but he, it. Yeah, here's something. We, yeah, we wanted to like it. We didn't succeed. The... the uh, but you recall the first thing we saw Stanley Tucci in, which was Big Night. Right. Uh, which is a story of uh, two guys who were chefs. Right. And uh, him and Tony Shalhoub, who started a restaurant and ends famously with a 10-minute scene in which one makes an omelet for the other. And it's a very uh, remarkable Well, the big scene. thing they're making is this timpano. And ah, apparently um, that is a family thing. Oh, is so, it? So anyway, so... This book tells the story of, uh, you know, it's a food memoir. We love yeah. food memoirs. He apparently recently, like three years ago, yeah. um, was diagnosed with the cancer. Yeah. He had a tumor on the back of his tongue. Jeez. So he went through some really horrible radiation treatments yeah. during which he lost his sense of taste. Yeah which drove him nuts, mm -hmm. you know. Um, he said, well, he, he's basically saying, if you can't taste uh, and enjoy food, 
what else is there? Why would you want to live? And uh, he, you know, he does regain his taste. But he actually started doing that TV series while he was still recovering. Oh, really? And he was unable to swallow a lot of the food. Oh, you're kidding And me. he could taste it Why at that he point. Why would a series like that? He could taste it at that point, but he would, you know, spit it out if he had to. Well, you know. And it, it hurt him. But anyway, it sounds like a nice story. Apparently his mom, you know, his both parents were uh, Italian uh, from Italy. And he grew up in uh, New York State. And he, um, you know, he would take his lunches would be like... You know, um, eggplant parmesan sandwiches, and uh, his mother claims that he would uh, trade those for um, peanut butter and jelly from the other kids, etc. Um, he says no. That's only when he got you know tired of the you know veal parmesan or whatever. Um, so anyway, it it actually sounds like a pleasant book. Do you know who he's married to? No, I don't know. He's married to Felicity Blunt. Okay. Who is Emily Blunt's sister. sister. Yeah, okay. Okay. And uh, apparently in the uh, interview I read, um, in one moment of their courtship, uh, they actually, uh, a chef gives them a brace of pheasants, which they, um, what do you call it when you take off uh, the feathers? They Mm. de-feathered together. Mm. Um, So it's it's an interesting uh, group. Oh, I do know Emily, I know Emily Blunt's married to. But you know that too. Yes. That's John Krasinski, right? Yes. But anyway, she yeah. is a, she fits right into the family um cuz she's apparently pretty interested in food as well. Yeah. So anyway, so Taste My Life Through Food by Stanley Tucci. Yeah. Apparently he got um Meryl Streep to eat some rather uh challenging sausages. Okay. At some point, and I'm uh, trying to think he, what movie they were in together, but I can't off the top. Oh, uh, they'll wear Prada. Oh, okay, there you go. And uh, but maybe, but maybe others too. Yeah, maybe others um, too. And uh, she says some. Oh, that has a bit of the barnyard in it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway. Okay, well, that that's sounds it sounds like a fun if you like uh, food memoirs. Okay. So the October third, twenty twenty one is the 70th anniversary of what's called the shot heard around the world. So we'll close with this. And I really thought that was a Paul Revere thing or yeah, something, I, but <laughs> it, it, it is. It but used to I've be, been disabused anymore. The, the shot yeah, heard around. The I hope world you're going to say something heard. interesting because I've seen it on every TV show. Oh, have you really? Yeah, I'm everybody's glad. talking okay. about it. Okay? So the shot heard around the world. So can I tell people what it is? Yes. What it is? Well, is when uh, Bobby Thompson hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth so that the Giants could defeat the Dodgers in a one-game playoff in 1951, a year in which the Giants were 13 and a half games behind the Dodgers in the middle of August and went on a tear of winning 16 games in a row. And in this intercity rivalry, this was the high point. Um, and that's a moment that has been uh, written about in, in Novels, there have been all kinds of Even I have heard of it. Been, and even you have heard of it. And we saw, we were watching <laughs> one of your news shows the other day, and George Hirsch came on because he had, uh, there's an article by him, today's New York Times, about his being a schoolboy at that time in New York and skipping school and going to watch the game. And he claims there are only 20,000 people at the game, even though... To hear people talk, there were millions of people claimed they were at that game. <laughs> but I will tell you what I can say confidently in terms of the truth of my own experience, and that I grew up with that moment 
in this way. Maybe well, this maybe you happened, but my father was a huge Johnny fan, and he had a record, a promotional record that was put out by uh, Lucky Strike mm-hmm. uh, uh, on that moment in sports history, which they printed, uh, they pressed into vinyl in 1951, and he would play that record often on on uh, our record player on uh, Long Island. And what it was, was after a promotional bit for Lucky Strike, uh, it was the play-by-play in the ninth inning where Russ Hodges is doing the, uh, the announcing. And uh, he does the whole inning. And I could give you the whole inning, but I'll spare you that. But I will say that the, the words that indelibly were printed in my mind that you may have heard the last a few days is that when Bobby Thompson gets up there against Ralph Branca, he swings and hits the ball. And it goes into the stands, and it's, he's yelling, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant. I don't believe it, I don't believe it. The Giants win the pennant. They're going crazy, they're going crazy. I mean, I, I, that's word for word. All right, here are my questions. Yes, one. Was this just something he owned or something he sold with his other no, promotional something items? something he owned, something he owned. Okay, 51 uh, was too where is it now? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe I have it. <laughs> That's a good question. That's probably worth something. Uh, you know, I, I, even if it's not worth something, I'd be shocked if you guys went through all the old LPs you know something? and I didn't have it. But I don't. I got to talk to my brother about it. I talked to Bob. All right. Uh, all right. So, but but it is. It's the perfect exemplar of, of what's there. Many many examples of the generational uh, connection uh, that baseball is is embedded with. You know, the father son thing. Uh, for some reason, of all the sports. That's the one, father and son. I don't know. It's mystical. We can go on. I can't explain it. Who knows? Um, George Hurst was talking about naming a son after Willie Mays, and he was a Dodger fan. So <laughs> I don't know how it comes, but uh, I'm not going to get into it now. We don't have the time. But I was certainly struck that there was an article by total coincidence in the paper today about Jake DeGrom, the great pitcher for the Mets, going back home at the end of the season. We all know Jake DeGrom is a great pitcher, two Young Awards, uh, you know, unapproachable in terms of his accomplishments. And uh, they talk about the fact that every year, at the end of the year, he goes back to the hometown where he grew up, which happens to be uh, De Leon Springs at a Ponce de Leon in Florida. And it looks like a pretty simple place. And, uh, you know, he, he married a high school sweetheart. Uh, his, his dad says, you know, uh, he hasn't changed at all to me. He's the same goofball he's ever been. Uh, he's driving a pickup truck. He's got two kids. Uh, the dad is named Tony. He's a retired cable line man. He talks about working for 40 years. Didn't miss a day of work for 17 years. Uh, and now he's got a son who's a major league pitcher who makes zillions and zillions of dollars. But, you know, it's the same life. And they, again, father and son. And it's uh, each year the season's end. He, uh, DeGrom takes two weeks entirely off from throwing, stays off the mound until the following February 1, and he grabs a glove and he gets some baseballs, and he goes out to throw the ball with his dad, Tony. And they have a, a ritual, which they start throwing the ball back and forth to each other, and the distance gets further and further until it gets to 180 feet, which is the distance they want to go as the maximum. And they say that Tony, fighting his own aches and pains, toss it as far as he can, but he can only throw it on a few bounces to his son, but they still do it. And Tony says, you have to be tough to get old. But uh, it's a nice story. So, you know, baseball is baseball. 
And when people say it's dull, it's boring, it's slow, there's something about it. Oh, everything always comes back to uh, family, right? Yeah. All right. Yes, so that's all we got today. Yes. And uh, uh, enjoy the fall. Enjoy the fall. All right. This is Tamson Green. And Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. See you next week.